This morning, let me ask you to turn to Romans chapter 7. We are going to uh, next Sunday be back in the Beatitudes to finish up that series. Let's bow together. Lord, if we are to glory, may it be only in our Redeemer. And Lord, as we, as it were, walk toward this table before us, will you prepare us in these moments? Use your word and your spirit to mold us, to make us, conforming us to who we are in Christ. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dale, uh, supper. That was me running into the house, slamming the door behind me, and then getting to the table. Often I had been outside and I would beat my dad and brother and sister to the table. I made a commitment as a young boy not to miss meals. And as you can see, that is one commitment I have kept all my life. Now, why was that the case? Well, several reasons. Uh, Nourishment was low on that, but I'm not a picky eater. I like everything. There's never a time when I'm going to the table and I think, oh, I hope we're not having such and such. That was, that's never been an issue with me. But the other thing is that in addition to enjoying that part of it, around that table was my family, my brother and sister, my mom and dad. We would review the day, we would laugh, we would talk, and that's how it was with our four children growing up as well. It was the one time when we were all together, at least when they were all in the house. I never had any fear coming to the table. No concern. No hesitation. Today, you who are in Christ are going to hear, come to supper. And some of you are going to have a hesitation. Because you have heard, rightfully so, you have heard that there is a fencing of the table. Not to keep people out who ought to be there, but to protect those who ought not to come. And in some of your lives, there is sin that you're dealing with that you're just not ready to let go. You're not ready to deal with it. And yet, because you know Christ, at the same time, you don't want to make a mockery of Him. 
And so there's concern when you walked in and saw this table before you this morning. Why do we keep on sinning? When I know the pain it causes, why do I still fall into sin so easily, even though I'm trusting in Christ for my eternal life? Why is that? I've been asked that question in one form or another, I'm sure, hundreds of times during my ministry. And it's a great question. We want to deal with that as we come to the table. We need to understand, first of all, the reality of that struggle. And that's why we're in Romans 7, beginning with verse 15. And this is the Apostle Paul. Was there ever anyone that, that loved Christ more than Paul? Listen to his struggle. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I... I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, here's the Apostle Paul. Struggling big time. He's wrestling with what he believes and with his actions because they don't seem to be matching up. Now, the first question that has to be addressed is Was he a believer at this point? I'm convinced he was. I'm convinced by the words of what he says here in the midst of this struggle. He says things like, I have the desire to do what is right. He says, the good I want, and so on. And then, this one really seals it for me, verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The unbeliever doesn't say those things. They're not convicted by wanting to do what is right, and certainly they don't like the law of God, not even way down deep in their inner being. So here he is, I am convinced, a believer, one who's trusting in Christ. And I'm convinced as well (coughs) that God saw fit for Paul to talk about his own struggle here in Romans 7, which comes obviously right after Romans 6, where it, there uh, Paul is talking about how we who are in Christ have died to sin. 
without chapter 7, a couple of things could have happened in talking about we have died to sin. Some would get so discouraged because they were, were struggling with sin like Paul was. If they had not heard his testimony, some would get so discouraged they'd say, well, I guess I'm just not a Christian then. Or the other thing is that some kind of a doctrine of perfectionism would grow up We've died to sin, okay, so we don't sin. So if we're a believer, then we're really perfect and we're just making mistakes or something like that. And that is, by the way, a doctrine that some churches teach. But Romans 7 destroys that doctrine because he's here struggling with sin. This week with the Penn State situation. Oh, didn't, didn't we see some rather amazing reactions to sin? To trying to cope with sin. What do, what do people do? Well, if you watched it at all, you saw the, the whole gamut of what people tried to do. I heard this statement, uh, Joe Paterno is seen as a saint here. And I saw people on their knees facing his house praying. I happened to be at at the gym watching TV while I was on the cardio uh, machine at the beginning of the Penn State game. And I saw the players, instead of bursting out onto the field, walking out arm in arm solemnly. And then I saw the players on Penn State and the opposing team all come together in the middle of the field before the game and kneel down and pray. And one of the other assistant coaches prayed. And the stadium, I don't know, what is it, 90,000, got silent. And it showed the people there, and they were weeping. It was touching, i got to say. I was glad I was sweating because it was rather embarrassing there in the gym. People don't know how to deal with it. And yet, I think in one way, that was a right response. Prayer, let's go to God. We don't know what else to do. There is a reality. And when people are confronted with the evil of sin, it takes them back onto their heels. We see his individual struggle here. How does the Christian deal with it? Well, first we need to grasp the theological facts. We're going to work on some theology here for a minute. One fact we see in Romans 6. In in the first verse, he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then verse 2, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Then on down in verse 6. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. For, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Now, you may be familiar with the term sanctification. That wonderful theological concept of growing uh, more and more to be like Christ. Hating your sin more, dealing with your sin, and growing to be more and more like him. Many of you have heard that term. But there is an aspect within that teaching of sanctification that we could call uh, definitive sanctification. Now here's what we mean by that. There are places in the New Testament, especially in Corinthians, for instance, in Corinthians, where it's, it addresses Christians and it says, you who have been sanctified. Now, what's that mean? Does that mean that, that they've, they're, they're perfect now? Isn't sanctification a process? Well, there is an aspect of sanctification that is tied really closely to our justification, which is being declared righteous. And there is that moment that we would call definitive sanctification when we have a break with sin. Boom. We are no longer, as it says in Romans 6, we are no longer slaves to sin. We no longer have to sin. Before Christ, you don't have a choice. You're going to sin. But after that break with sin, you are sanctified. Not perfect, but you have a new status. And it is that you are no longer bound to sin. It's possible for us not to sin at that point. Now, that theological uh, point has to be grasped, but then there's the other side, and that is progressive sanctification. That's usually what we think of. For instance, in Romans 8, we're looking on both sides of Romans 7, obviously. In Romans 8, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Here's the picture. It's it's a progressive thing. And there's a tug of war. There's a conflict The spirit and sin. Now, they're not equal foes. But if you picture a tug of war, it goes back and forth. But ultimately, if you can step back and see the big picture, if you're in Christ, the spirit will win more and more as time goes on, if you are in Christ. 
sin may have its occasional victories. But ultimately, the big picture is we are moving to be more and more like Christ. Definitive sanctification is God alone working in our lives. Progressive sanctification is God working in our lives and us working as well. Now, how does that work? <laughs> Are we co-pilots? No. <laughs> but here's, uh, here's how it's described. We've got to fight a daily battle. It's about choices. Uh, back in Romans 6, I'm bouncing you back and forth. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He's, this is a command. Don't, don't let that happen. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Do not let sin reign. There's the command. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin. There's the command. And he says, you've been brought from death to life. That's the definitive sanctification. Look, this is who you are. You don't have to sin, so don't, is what he's saying. But there's another side to it. And that is the Spirit's empowerment. Back to Romans 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now here's a question. How disciplined are you? Some of you are very disciplined people. But if all you're doing is trying to conquer your own sin in your own strength with your own devices... It's only going to work as far as your discipline will take you. I often have people come into my office that are, are struggling with one sin or another. And I'll often say, so what are you doing about that? You're concerned about it. What are you doing about it? And a lot of times they'll have a list of things that they are doing. Well, I'm being held accountable by so-and-so and I've got this thing on my computer and I'm, you know, or, you know, and they, and they give me this list of things. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with any of those things. They're good. It's good that you're working on it from that perspective. But if that's all, then it's only going to work as, as long as you're disciplined it just depends on your own strength, and that's why you're still struggling with it, many of you. Because you think you can overcome it in your own flesh and your own strength, and as long as we're here in this world, we can't. We need the empowerment of the Spirit of the living God that dwells within us. If not, if all we've got is these rules or fences that we've put in place, it's just like being a Pharisee. And it won't last long, and it's not real. It's both and. Let me read to you a couple of verses. Colossians 1, verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. 
Do you get that? Do you see the balance there? It's both and. He doesn't say, for this I toil struggling with all the energy I can work up within myself and all the good things I can figure out. He says, I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And then Paul says elsewhere, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things. You see, there's the balance. This is, I struggle, I work, but I'm empowered by the Spirit. And we will only deal with our sin insofar as those are there. Here's the absolute conclusion. Romans 8 again. Verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the absolute. There is now no condemnation for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. You don't have to sin, you who are in Christ. You who are trusting in him alone, you don't have to sin. If you sin, you're choosing to. And here's what he calls us. In Romans 8, 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That could be translated. I've seen it translated. We are super invincibles. Sounds like a superhero, doesn't it? That's who we are in Christ. You who are trusting in Christ. There's been a break with sin. Don't act like it is still your master. So what about today? What do we do? How do we do this? How do we struggle? Well, you've heard it before. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. You mean I got to get saved every day? No, you don't have to get saved every day. You know what? For For the real believer, to hear the gospel well presented is a glorious thing. Do that for yourself every single day. It will refresh you. It will drive you back to the cross. It will remind you of your need for the power of the Spirit in your life. But it will also remind you that, boom, I've had this definitive break with sin. And it's no longer my master. And that'll keep us from false ideas of holiness, which are so common. It'll take us back to the cross. Let me read to you a quote from uh, Horatius Bonar. He said this. Here's, Here's our motivation. The love of God to us and our love to him work together for producing holiness. You get it? It's not because I love him so much, that's part of it, but it's his love for us as well. Terror accomplishes no real obedience. Suspense brings forth no fruit unto holiness. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue 
one's lust or correct our crookedness of will. In other words, being scared to death of him is not going to change us and make us holy. But the free pardon of the cross uproots sin and withers all its branches. I like that picture. It's, you know, you, some of you have just cleaned out your garden recently. You uprooted it. If you did that in the middle of summer, you would uproot it. And then before long, you'd begin to see the branches wither. And that's what he says. That's what the free pardon of the cross does. Only the certainty of love, forgiving love, can do this. Paul put it more succinctly. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. That's to be highly motivated. He says the greatest motivation is Christ's love for us. Now where do we learn from his love? Where do we hear him say, I love you? It's in the gospel. It's at the cross. That's why we preach it to ourselves every single day. So today, if you're in Christ, come and eat. You're getting the call to supper. And you don't need to be afraid. Because this is that table of love. Where the Father calls us. Not because we are perfect, but because His Son is perfect. And because of what Jesus did for us. That's why we remember. That's why we take. And so today, commune with Him. It's not a threatening place for His children. Because it's a table of love. Let's bow together. Lord, we pray that we would be able to approach it in that way. We, we who know Christ, who, who fail to follow him every single day. We failed this morning, last night, yesterday. But thank you that it's not about our successes. It's about the success of Christ and what he did for us. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.